Okay, who are we calling? Uh, we're calling Sean Dust. Have you guys Ooh, met Sean oh, Dust? Oh, nice. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay, that was in the, the rehearsal. Have we met him? Oh, Gosh. yeah, of course. We ready for Sean's number, Mike? Yes. Yeah. All right. Here it is. Hello. Hey, Sean. Yo. How's it going? Good, good, good. Uh, what are you up to tonight? Is there something going on? Are you having a party in the background? I, see, I hear some chatter. Yeah, you guys are uh, you guys are in on my little party here. No, oh, heck yeah, man. Night, Live from Sean's party. <laughs> party. <laughs> so, uh, How's it going? Good, good, good. Glad you, uh, glad you set time aside from your party to join join us on the cast. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So we'll... Uh, yeah, I guess usually how this goes is the person who introduces. Kind what of are you watching? Super Bowl, Sean? What? Say <laughs> <laughs> what? Why is the TV on? Terrible idea. It was cold outside. I had to step into a bar and get a drink. You know. Oh. In a nice. bar on a Wednesday. It's Chicago. You can do anything there. <laughs> yeah. Chicago. Every day is Saturday Chicago's in Chicago. <laughs> it's the city of Saturday. That's right. And right. give it some razzle dazzle, you know? Yeah, just yeah, whatever kind of flavor you want to put on it, the floor is yours. So put some Chicago in it. No, oh, okay, okay. We also have to ask Sean, like, hey, have you read a C.S. Lewis book before? Do you like C.S. Lewis? Are you Anglican like him, actually? <laughs> Something. You know, I have read, I don't think it was, no, The Great Divorce is the one where the uh, cities, or no, the houses keep getting further from each other, right? Yeah, that's Great Divorce. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great Divorce, okay. I've heard of it. All right, you ready? <laughs> so you've heard. Of one of his, okay, Matt, where How? did you find this guy? Walmart. <laughs> okay, so where? Um, how often do you guys uh, release one of these? I need to know that. Every three, three. weeks or so. And now, the podcast you've been waiting for for three weeks. The great speech, guys. We got a little bit of Matt, a little bit of Landon, Ross, and Schaefer, as they discuss C.S. Lewis, shoot, what is this, The Abolition of Man? Yep. Yes. You <laughs> got it. You got it. Right. The Abolition of Man. Boom. Boom. And I guess cue the music. <laughs> <laughs> when you see the every direction it will give you eyes give you hope it'll give you perspective i've been back and forth and yeah i had my crashes now i've seen the road it goes every direction so the abolition of man uh, is a speech by C.S. Lewis as introduced by special guest Sean Dust. Um, it is a series of lectures that C.S. Lewis gave in 1943 uh, to King's College. Um, in terms of why I picked it, 
um, I believe it was The Art of Manliness that cited this book as one of the big ones for just understanding the modern age. Um, I think it was this and two others. Um, and then kind of in a short period of time, a few other, just like a handful of people had mentioned this book to me, either mentioned it or I'd heard about it on different podcasts and whatnot. So it was the type of thing that uh, kind of felt like a tap on my shoulder to, to kind of look into it. So got the book for my birthday. Um, and it's uh, has a lot to do with education and morality, which as a uh, semi-recent father, uh, son's only one year old, uh, just turned one a couple weeks ago. Um, yeah. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Um, but yeah, just as like a, a semi-recent dad, just starting to at least mull over, obviously don't need to make any decisions soon about education and like schools and whatnot, but, um, but yeah, like it's the type of thought that's on my mind more and, uh, something we hadn't really talked about directly is education and kind of what that looks like and what the ideals are behind it. So, um, without further ado, we'll, uh, we'll actually, um, so the abolition of man's a little bit different than a lot of the other speeches we've done, right? Most of the speeches were kind of these concise kind of, um, yeah, concise speeches were that kind of represent one moment. Um, this is more or less a lecture he gave over the course of three, um, three evenings, right? Three evenings in which he spoke. Um, each evening was kind of, be, and eventually became a chapter of a book and it's a relatively short book. Um, and each kind of has a main question, kind of a prevailing question um, that I think is a good way to kind of summarize uh, just each chapter, just to give a little bit of context. And then from there, we'll kind of dive into it a little bit. Um, so the first lecture he gave, um, I guess you can summarize, he's answering the question, what are they teaching kids these days? And what are the potential implications? Um, he cites a book, and he kind of uses a lot of pseudonyms in this book. So he calls, uh, he, he kind of uses the, the term green book to describe this um, kind of particular English textbook he was given by the authors uh, for review of some sort. Yeah, I didn't have time to look up like the social cultural significance of this green book. Our American knowledge of Green Book is limited to the film The Green Book, which was apparently this book which told you where uh, black people were, quote-unquote, safe to sleep in the South. Oh, really? Yeah, so that, this isn't that. Oh, yeah. This isn't Come that. Come on. Jeez, Matt. It's a modern movie. <laughs> you should listen to the podcast episode, um, I Have a Dream Speech, and get on your <laughs> racial awareness. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the green. Yeah, that was the. Green All right, book. so the green book. But we don't know. We don't know the cultural significance of their green book. I think he literally just picked it as a random pseudonym for the book. Just oh, it's just the, to oh, trash. Yeah, just to not like name. openly trash these people. Um, <laughs> but it did but, exist. It was a yes, real. Yes, it was a real book. <laughs> um, if you look on the Wikipedia page, it actually does say the specific book because he, he kind of highlights mm. things so people were able to figure it out after the fact but just so he didn't directly trash them just kind of indirectly and he also refers to the authors as Gaius and Titius so if we ever have any references to a Gaius or a Titius um, I feel like it's probably Gaius Gaius, <laughs> Gaius. All right. Gaius whatever Gaius or Titius uh, Matt didn't read his English <laughs> book growing up 
<laughs> the second one might be Titus. <laughs> Got his and Titus. <laughs> Regardless of the exact pronunciation of their names. <laughs> Regardless of the pronunciation of their names. Uh, that's who he's talking about. So, so Gaius and Titius are the authors of this book and, and – uh, the green book is this uh, – it's a real book, but it's a pseudonym that he gives. So anyway, um, just a few little things just to avoid any potential confusions uh, for the listeners. Um, so the first one he answered – well, I think this is kind of his uh, – I guess he comes across excerpts from this book that suggest uh, just a lot of – just cultural relativism, I guess, just to summarize it. Um and the authors kind of reduce um, kind of these traditional like English texts to kind of just sentiments, right? So, oh, well, he's not saying this is truly a sublime waterfall. It's really just he had sublime feelings about it. Um, you know, it's not really it, – he's not saying anything objectively true about the, the waterfall, right, for example. Um, so anyway, in response um, – to this sort of uh, critiquing and debunking, as as he calls it, um, he calls out Gaius and Titius uh, for their misrepresentation, and he says, and this is a speech excerpt. I think Gaius and Titius may have honestly misunderstood the pressing educational need of the moment. They see the world around them as swayed by emotional propaganda. They have learned from tradition that youth is sentimental. And they conclude that the best thing they can do is to fortify the minds of young people against emotion. My experience as a teacher tells an opposite tale. For every one pupil who needs to be guarded from a weak excess of sensibility, there are three who need to be awakened from the slumber of cold vulgarity. The task of the modern educator is not to cut down jungles, but to irrigate deserts. The right defense against false sentiments is to inculcate just sentiments. By starving the sensibility of our pupils, we make them easier prey for propagandists when they come. For famished nature will be avenged, a hard, and a hard heart is no infallible protection against a soft head. So this is, um, he basically outlines, yeah, just that sentiment, or that argument, right? They kind of call out and reduce things, this sort of like kind of reductionism to, to sentiment. Um, he then kind of goes on to explain what is kind of the answer to that, and he describes it as the Tao. So this is another kind of language-specific thing that, that Lewis uh, throws out there. Um, and I'll kind of describe that, uh, describe that here with another quote of his. Until quite modern times, all teachers and even all men believed the universe to be such that certain emotional reactions on our part could be either congruous or incongruous to it. Believed, in fact, that objects did not merely receive, but could merit our approval or disapproval, our reverence or our contempt. The reason why Coleridge agreed with the tourist that called the cataract sublime and disagreed with the one who called it pretty was, of course, that he believed in inanimate nature to be such that certain responses could be more than just or ordinate or appropriate than others. Kind of going forward, uh, skipping a section. This conception in all its forms, Platonic, Aristotelian, Stoic, Christian, and Oriental alike, I shall henceforth refer to, for brevity, simply as the Tao. 
Some of the accounts of it, which I have quoted, will seem perhaps to you merely quaint or even magical. But what is common to them is something we cannot neglect. It is the doctrine of objective value, the belief that certain attitudes are really true and others are really false. To the kind of, to the kind of thing the universe is and to the kinds of things we are. End quote. Um, so we'll kind of pause there and, and digest a little bit of what C.S. Lewis is saying. And there's actually one other quote that I might get to later on that's just kind of a cool summary that, that he ends with. Um, so what were your guys' response to kind of like this first section just in terms of um, kind of the, ta- the idea of the Tao? And I guess did you – to what degree were you exposed to it? you know, in your high school, you know, middle school education? Um, well, to sort of also help clarify this uh, metaphor of the waterfall being pretty or sublime, I think another kind of way of picturing that, which sort of just came to me and helps it make a little bit more sense, um, you know, imagine like you taking your child to see the Grand Canyon or the Sistine Chapel and rather than expressing some form of awestruckness in the midst of this gorgeous, majestic thing, you know, they're something like meh or, oh, it's nice, you know, something like that, right? You would say there's something wrong with that child or that kid if they don't respond in a certain way with language. Right. So I don't know. I I thought the sublime pretty illustration was not quite as clear of because pretty sublime. I don't know. Those sound somewhat close, but so isn't hopefully. Yeah. Isn't both isn't the waterfall example and the Grand Canyon example. That seems a little bit too easy for the depth of what he's trying to convey for like the misdirection of education like is it really just like people aren't objectively saying nature is beautiful i mean or so is it more like he's getting to like moral and doing right laws of mankind not like in these kind of natural artifacts so it's he, a little bit too goes, surface level. He goes down that he goes down that track more the moral track a little bit later on, um, but with the the waterfall thing, he was actually res- so uh, uh, Gaius and Titius specifically referenced this like, um, and I'm probably butchering this name too, but Coleridge I think is his name, a famous poet, um, who who like I guess famously criticized someone for using the term pretty instead of sublime right so um, the the green book authors um, basically said like oh well that's not really a good criticism because you know they're really just describing their feelings so you can't say their feelings are wrong you know so it's kind of this subtle move towards subjectivism right so he's yeah I, I agree it's not like um, this isn't like his home run, but this is kind of just like yeah, a, okay. a subtle, yeah, just like a subtle way that um, the the authors of this English textbook um, just kind of like just sneak some of this stuff in there. Um, so it's like how so the 
To be specific, the authors of this textbook call the waterfall sublime. Their statements, C.S. Lewis says their statements about the speaker's feelings on the matter, and that is evident. It's like they're putting their own projected emotions into something, and we, we objectively know that that's incorrect so, or, or so. understated, and... I think so. So I think if I read it correctly, so the people in the Green Book, this Gaius and Tidius people are, yeah, they're saying that, you know, that they're only describing how they feel about the waterfall, yeah, as opposed to yeah. something objective about the waterfall. Where right. C.S. Lewis is arguing that no, there are certain things, and he gets into to, to your first point, like he does get into a lot of the moral and ethical stuff, but yeah, I think yeah, it would yeah. be safe to say like statements like that would be also included within the Tao. So yeah. kind of like to Mike's example, like there is some okay. sort of universal, historic, traditional, mm -hmm. however you want to call it, like understanding that, yes, like the Grand Canyon is majestic. Mm -hmm. And like to say otherwise would just be incorrect, not you're disagreeing with my opinion. I wonder, is that, this is a really good example. It isn't surface level, and I think we can already in our minds correlated to so many other current things. Um, is he saying, all right, so he's criticizing them for saying this waterfall is sublime and that is their... No, he's he's criticizing them for criticizing someone else for saying sublime is a preferred term. Oh. So the, these... My question is like, what <laughs> is, what's his solution or given the text, given his like whole chapter one stuff of what he's getting at, like, and this could be our interpretation of his solution. I'm not sure if he quite lays it out clearly. Like what is an appropriate way to talk about nature's beauty in the sense of a waterfall? So I don't know if he answers that specific thing directly um, in terms of just nature's beauty or whatever, but I mean, his his answer is like the doc the doctrine of and this is um, part of the quote I read is like it is the doctrine of objective value, the belief that certain attitudes are really true and others are really false, the kind of thing that the universe and kind of things that we are. So you can say true and false things about something that are are either better or worse. So like when these authors are saying that there's no real there's no right or wrong way to describe a waterfall. Um, He's saying baloney because that's what our entire English profession has been doing. Like, you know, is trying to figure out the right and wrong or the best and worst ways or the most apt ways to, like, write and describe and to articulate things. So to, like, say that calling a waterfall pretty is the same caliber of writing um, as to call it sublime, like, he's saying that's that's a bunch of malarkey, right? Um and, like, the reasoning they give for, like, equating sublimity and just being pretty is is they say, like, oh, well, this is all reduced to feelings, right? So if you reduce these objective statements to feelings, that is, that's a, basically you're, you're in one fell swoop kind of making a huge jump from, like, something that can be, you're, you're saying that things can't necessarily, Value statements aren't value statements anymore. They're just feeling statements, and therefore 
They can be either dismissed or they can't be disproven. Or both. Yeah. <clears throat> I might use a slightly different word than just feelings. I would say they're they can be permissed in the eyes of Gaius and I do think Matt's right with the tedious one though. Uh <laughs> Gaius and Tidious, because they're because they're perceptions and how can you know of anything outside of your perception? Um, which it it's some level that makes sense, but at a you know obviously at C.S. Lewis's point, you quickly pull the rug out from under you because yeah, if, if everything is perception, you just you simply can't know anything, and yeah. <clears throat> Well, yeah, and and I think he he also accuses um, accuses that basically if if you dismiss all motion regard of its degree to the harmony with reason, right, to the degree to which it correlates with something we can observe, like that's yeah, basically that's just like one quick and subtle move to to basically undermine. I mean, and I think he uses the. Um, like, you know, just basically unknowingly or like uh, this is another quote from from his. So the very power of Gaius and Tidius depends on the fact that they are dealing with a boy, a boy who thinks he is doing his English prep and has no notion of ethics, theology or and politics are all at stake. Right. So you kind of just throw these subtle kind of twists in there um, that that form the consciousness of, of a child who's not who's, who's not reading a, a a moral textbook um, or a philosophy textbook, but um, but it's still kind of forming his consciousness and his soul and um, all that. Yeah, that's what I was gonna to kind of get back to the like you brought in like the English, you know, the education part. And I know your question. <clears throat> I feel like your question earlier was something to the effect of like, did we get the Tao in our education? Um, I believe, but like I feel like. I mean, to say it simply, like, I feel like I did receive what I think I would call the cat, the Tao, um, within my education. I think you said earlier, middle school and high school, I was thinking like elementary school to middle school. Um, but to try to, I feel like, and maybe I'm jumping too much and, you know, taking it too far with how I'm thinking about it. But when I think of my education, I guess I don't just think of schooling. Um, I kind of, think more collectively like what did I learn at home what did I learn at school what did I learned at church what did I learned in Cub Scout like all the different things I did growing up I kind of lump together as my education um and I feel like I received a lot of a I guess I'll say foundational way of thinking that I think would be in line with Lewis's the Tao just to be really clear on the Tao for our listeners sure have we, have we described what the Tao is? So one of the quotes I read was, um, I think is probably most succinct description. Um, so basically, the doctrine of objective value, the belief that certain attitudes are really true and others are really false. And this concept, he, he kind of acknowledges, can exi- or has existed in many forms. So Platonic, Aristotelian, Stoic, Christian, and Oriental alike are kind of the ones he specifically lays out. But basically, just of ages past or traditional um, 
yeah, traditional rules uh, or traditional kind of baseline. Uh, <coughs> later on, I think he describes them almost as like a, like a first principle or like a primary color, um, like something that exists um, in a way that if you, you, you can't really question or, or to question them any further means you're just kind of ignoring humanity <laughs> and you're just kind of needlessly um, uh, trying to ask for proof of something that can't exist. Um, just because it's such an underlying basic principle, um, they're not really questionable, right? They're just, uh, yeah, I guess that, that might be one way to, to describe that. Yeah. Um, I, another maybe might be helpful, simple, concise way to is sort of the, the moral convergence of the world's major religions, yeah. I think, you know, not simply just that, but I think ultimately that's sort of what, what he's getting at. Yeah. He does, uh, he does summarize them. I think they're, they're kind of interesting to read. They're in the appendix of the speech that we're talking about. <clears throat> they essentially are eight laws. More or less, you could refine them from like generally the Ten Commandments, but he does a really cool thing where in the definition of each of the eight laws, he pretty much cites sources that are not biblical. For each one, he throws in like the one Bible verse that pertains to the law, but he mostly uses Roman, Greek, um, and a lot of ancient uh, Eastern yeah, there's Text. Egyptian, Babylonian, yeah. Jewish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting um, things here. So as a fun aside that's also related to this exact topic, I was recent. well, <laughs> when I was dating someone somewhat recently, um, <laughs> I, I said something half-jokingly that, you know what? People should have their choice of five religions. You can be Christian or Buddhist or um, Muslim or Jewish, you know, or Confucianism or something. And it's like the point that I was sort of getting at there is that, you know, these are the religions that built the world. And regardless of the extent to which they perfectly manifest um moral behavior they still have a tremendous capacity to organize and move people in very important ways um which says a lot versus you know some sort of new age spirituality that has a collection of you know baby boomers who go drink white wine there every sunday afternoon like (laughs) That religion has affected the world in no way whatsoever, and so how can it be useful, right? Um, so I don't know, just sort of a similar, similar uh, point there that I think is interesting. Yeah, and I think I think I, I'm just going to add one last thing, just more context-wise, and then we'll move on to the second one. And we can always come back and talk about a lot of these types of things. So um, I guess one. Uh, one way to another way to summarize his critique of the Green Book is that it's it's very focused on debunking, right? He uses that term a lot, or basically just poking holes in these sort of traditional values, um, 
and just kind of undermining different things. And he gives more specific examples in his text. So, and, and I think just I don't want to get hung up on, on the specific examples too much. But um, and basically just the, the emphasis seems to be to debunk and to discredit kind of these traditional things. Um, and I'll end with uh, his endings paragraph of this because I think this is a, a, a fame. Well, yeah, it's a famous thing um, or a famous line. You can hardly open a periodical without coming across a statement that what our civilization needs is more drive or dynamism or self-sacrifice or creativity. In sort of a ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings to be fruitful. Um, so yeah, kind of a strong end there. Um, so moving on to the second chapter, he kind of, uh, well, I, hold on. <laughs> I, I feel like there's stuff there to comment. Yeah. On. All right. Go comment. for it. Comment away. Um, what's a man without a yeah, chest? Th- some, Ross, something that I guess stuck out to me about that line. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's like <clears throat> how, and of course Lewis goes into this stuff in in the speech um, regarding like how how do you explain the the reality the significance of wanting to die for one's country right if everything is reduced to just if the only thing real is perception and and instinct how do you how do you get at these realities which do truly like move the universe um well move move the world and yeah i do wonder it's like in terms of okay so the idea here you know just very succinctly we're thinking about the idea of like the military and it it's you know I I sort of imagine there's you know none of us have been in the military here but I, I sort of imagine that you get you know mostly guys obviously some girls you know who want to well this one is I say more just only guys there are some guys who go to the military just because they want to shoot someone as gross and disgusting as that is that that's a reality that's what some people do in the military um. And then, of course, on the other side of it, there's people who go into the military. Now, this one would be more also just including girls is that, you know, yeah, they go into it for this very noble purpose to serve their country, protect their country, you know, help out a weaker country in some way. And like that whole that whole dynamic, that ladder dynamic like that that require and this actually goes to our everybody loves raymond episode with like faith faith being is like a muscle that needs to be there to be a good mom right and the the connection here i think with lewis and the how how do you have a really powerful strong in the right ways military if you don't have a people of faith in your country right because just and of course, there's certainly like atheists. Well, okay, here, here, actually, let me put it this way: 
how many people in the military are nuns, that N-O-N-E-S group? Because I would say those are the actual people who don't have faith. Because hey, if you are willing to say, I'm an atheist, like you are an actual person of faith. That's not like being patronizing or condescending in some weird way. You just are, right? It's, it's that N-O-N-E-S group that is actually the people of non-faith. And I'd be really interested to know what percent of them join the military or do some sort of like secular sort of sacrifice well i definitely i would assume or project they'd be a very low percentage of the military i don't know about secular service um would give them the benefit of the doubt there but given the military is already mostly like certainly more rural in nature um i I wouldn't say good portion of them would be nuns um yeah you'd have to like pretty i don't know be fairly patriotic nuns probably don't have much faith in anything so um (laughs) i don't know for some reason i'm not too scared to express this thought but we, we imagine like school shooter type people right and we tend to imagine, right, that just these very, like, weak-looking boys, you know, who have have no friends, just real no capacity to, like, operate in the world in meaningful ways. And there seems to be, like, some sort of connection there, like where we, as a society, sort of, like, laugh the notion of real manhood, i.e. people with chests, but then we, I don't, it's, it sounds cold and I don't want it to sound cold, but surprise when these very realistically men without chess in the most dark, morbid way possible, you know, commit mass shootings, you know. And of course, I don't want to say like, oh, that's all there is to the problem, not gun control. But I, th- I think I think there is a dimension to that. And I'd just be very hard pressed for someone to say, oh, no, that has nothing to do with it. Right. It's it's a very specific kind of bulk guy. It's always a guy who tends to commit <clears throat> these yeah. um, crimes. And it's I don't. Yeah, I don't know if that's. We're trying to imagine what their psyche is typically they leave like somewhat long journals yeah would not be well versed in some of these natural laws that lewis describes i mean if you read through them they are like you know honoring elders like protecting children like seeking justice they're very benevolent values of um a belief system that would not shoot up a school and somehow they've imagined a very robust different worldview that they've written out and have taken from dark corners of the internet that is absent of everything Lewis is talking about which is surprising where they get that like I don't I've heard of these long journals that they've had i'm specifically referencing i think the columbine boys had a lot of writing um i mean to kind of think about some of the stuff you guys are talking about but to also like keep in mind the the tau and even like the how he started his this chapter i think it's 
what I thought was interesting, and I'll try to connect it to what you guys are saying too, but like when he made the comment, you know, how this green book that these young boys are reading is going to shape, you know, 10 years later, they're going to have some, some question before them and they're going to answer it and their answer will be heavily influenced. They won't be able to say where it came from, but it's going to be from, you know, this idea that waterfall that you know waterfalls aren't sublime that's just how you feel about it that type of thing um and i think he talks about later like you can't take part of the tau or you lose the whole thing i think he talked about like people try to take one piece of it and they it always fails and i feel like that's kind of part of what intrigued me a little bit because matt you mentioned you know your son is you're starting to think about school i mean i've got a kid in school another one not I got two kids in school, another one about to be in school, and another one on the way. So, like, um, that's a very big topic in my mind. And I just started to think about what things today are they teaching that even though it has no direct correlation to any difficult moral, philosophical, political questions, but, like, what things are they teaching kids now that will be that that's going to that's going to determine how they think about something 10 years later and they won't remember oh it's this idea i learned in first grade but even though that will be a big part of why they think the way they do um so anyway i thought that was like a really interesting piece and then to try to kind of tie it into like this type of stuff and like mike you were talking about the nuns like i feel like the tao has a strong influence in western society but I, it seems like people have gravitated towards parts of it and like kind of lo and behold, yep, C.S. Lewis is a prophet here, like we've lost the whole thing. Yeah, and, and I do think, um, and actually you guys kind of inadvertently summarized the, the second chapter pretty well because Mike, I know you mentioned the, the kind of the noble death idea and the military, or specifically in relation to the military. And, like, how do you – I mean, yeah, it's no wonder military recruitment has been a real big problem the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, at least from what I've heard. Um, is that, yeah, like, if you don't have um, – if you've kind of spent your educational efforts teaching kids how to debunk things, um, yeah, they're going to be pretty bright at debunking, but they're also going to – be very bright at debunking right? and like maybe not really particularly wise in like what it is they, they debunk. Um, What's something I, you think would traditionally be viewed as a noble death that people would debunk today? Like what's an example of something you think? Yeah. Um, I mean, I would think, um, I mean, if you were, I mean, a lot of martyr situations, I, I mean, we don't experience that in like, USA, um, in the USA, but, um, I mean, certainly in other countries, if it's like, oh, why don't you just denounce and just go along and get along and just, you know, practice your faith privately. Like I, I, yeah, like I think people would kind of, um, kind of make that those sorts of arguments or statements. Um, I mean, I think you could, um, I mean, I think the same thing just with a lot of, I know, I mean, more parents have been kind of vocal about, um, just transgender issues and just like sex ed issues recently. And, and I think some people are like, why are you, you know, causing a big fuss about this? Like we're just teaching your kids, you know, what's the science says, you know, is, is good, whatever. So like, um, and, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of people would be like, eh, just who, you know, quit making a ruckus. Just teach your kids whatever you want at your home and just let a, you know, let the schools be, you know. Um, I think there's that sort of stuff that would kind of be thrown out like, yeah, it's not a literal death, but like these parents are sacrificing their time, effort, reputations, um, things like that for something they believe is, is right. So, um, but, um, but yeah, I guess just the, uh, yeah, so that's kind of, I think you guys pretty well spoke to like the next move he makes is kind of like just the downstream effects. You know, Mike mentioned some difficulties with the military, um, or, you know, just kind of making, just having more noble romantic sort of moves like that, that are actually really good and true and beautiful, um, that are kind of like, yeah, just dismissed maybe. Um, but yeah, so the second chapter is basically dedicated to just different arguments. Like if not moral, or if, if we don't have these sort of values and we can't make these objective statements, like what do we have? And, and, um, he kind of goes through a series of things that, um, yeah, basically from a subjectivist lens. So, um, if nothing can, if no sentiments or, or traditional values can justify a noble death, you know, maybe you could justify it on utilitarian grounds or rational grounds, you know, but if that's useful for some people, it's not useful for the people who are dying. Right. Um, and then, uh, maybe it's just some instinct, right? That's it's another argument he proposes, but kind of dismisses that because we have a lot of different instincts and you can't really order one over the other without making kind of a moral claim is another good argument that he makes on that front. Um, and basically, you know, if there's not even a human instinct, the kind of this very basic real thing, we're kind of either forced to choose between a valueless world and, and the Tao, right. Is kind of how he, how he puts it. Um, and we'll come back to some of these, yeah, some of these questions and, and things that have kind of come up. Um, but C.S. Lewis at the end of this paragraph or end of this chapter, uh, or section of the speech proposes a third idea, um, that is intriguing. Basically, uh, kind of acknowledges the idea that the Tao isn't just a step or is, is just a stepping stone, right? So it was good and it was true for a while. It got us to where we're at today, which we're grateful for, but it's really just a stepping stone to something else, right? Um, we were once subject to nature, but learning about it, we subdued it. And now that we can kick aside the Tao, we've grown out of the Tao. We've, the Tao is our launching pad uh, to something bigger and better. We have the tools to subdue nature and kind of innovate our way into solving problems, right? We don't need the Tao to guide us we can kind of figure it out for ourselves, um, which brings us, that's kind of the question he answers in the third lecture or third speech is why can't we just grow past the Tao and just socially or technologically learn our way out of problems? Um, so yeah, that's an interesting question without reading, without having read Lewis, what would you have? Yeah. What might be an answer that you would have given? Like, why can't we just engineer our problems away? My first thought would have been, um, <clears throat> I hope this answers the question well, but that without reading this, how would I explain why you can't just engineer yourself out of the Tau would be because you need the Tau for good engineering. So it's like, 
Bishop Barron talks about a lot, like science is awesome, but there's principles that you have to have in place for science to work. So, right, he talks about like the, what is he, uh, the intelligibility of the universe. Like you have to accept that the universe is going to make sense or you can't study it and you can't use numbers and physics and facts to describe it. So he talks about that a lot. Like, um, like it's, we're not, it's not attacking it. Science. It's saying like there's certain, you know, first principles that have to exist just for it to work in the first place. Repeat the question. Um, why, I guess, uh, I didn't answer or say it this way the first time, but maybe why is the Tao still important? Why can't we just grow past it and basically kind of determine for ourselves via technology and social science, um, kind of the answers to our problems or questions? I felt like some of what he was getting at was like the entirety of our mentalities is like, has already been built into these distilled principles and almost no matter any way that you would innovate or try to cut yourself off from it, it's still like at the root. I think the way you described it was like, we're all on this tree of humanity and like these massive branches have come up from these laws. And while you might think you're like, building a new tree um you're just on a different branch it might be like in a response or you're trying to reject some aspect of the trunk but like you're still on the trunk um and yeah it's hard to like totally innovate off of the realities of some of the natural laws that we have for so <clears throat> i would say because there's something written in us that recognizes a certain um, desire to be congruent with the forces of the universe, however you conceive of those forces. All right, so here's here's to put a specific uh, example or analogy to it. Right, so. <clears throat> What is more extraordinary to people? If let, let's just say that <clears throat> mankind has not um, broken four minutes in the mile yet, for whatever reason, it's just been beyond our grasp. And so, and there there have been guys who've trained really hard, and um, it just hasn't hasn't come through. But we eventually figure out that hey, you know what we can do. We can just um, use some of those uh, that CRISPR, some of that CRISPR, get get this kid's genes where they need to be, so that he's going to be a stud runner, and uh, we're going to produce produce that kid, and then we're going to get him uh, get him hooked up with a sports psychologist when he's at the age of reason, seven years old, and we're going to get things rolling, and you know by the time he's uh, 19, 20 years old, he's going to break the four minute mile, right? There's something about that story that is just like that's that's not real. It's not it's not tied up in the spirit of the Tao, if you will, versus how, of course, it actually happened is that, you know, Roger Bannister just trained his guts off 
for some period of time, had this key workout that he figured out, figured out how to work with the uh, guys who were pacing and uh, got the weather figured out, right? And and that's how it worked. Right. And you can think of like different analogies to that. Rocky and Drago, um, baby. Or diff- Rock. Yeah, that sounds silly, but there's there's a certain amount of truth that using steroids versus not using steroids. Um, or, I mean, this is a really dark example, but there's, like, truth to this, too. You know, a couple who has, like, three healthy children, but, oh, they actually took the life of one of them because he or she had Down syndrome. Like... You can have two couples who look the exact same, three healthy children. One circumstance, they took the life, and that obviously happens, sadly, grossly. Took the life of that child. Like, there's something that's that it's just repulsive, repulsive about that. And I think there's no other explanation. I, I think that sort of breaks out this idea that engineering us to the same endpoint is not the same thing, even though it looks the same. Oh, man, dude, the movie The Watchmen, like, talks about this, hmm. actually. Hmm. I've never seen that movie. You guys seen The Watchmen? I have not. I've seen it once, but there's, at the end of the movie, I'm just giving away, spoiler alert, there's some kind of taking of innocent life that takes place by one of the main characters, which results in this perfect world. But there, this perfect world is like there's this invisible dark cloud that's sort of like insinuated that this perfect world exists only because this this moral crime was committed, even though it all looks perfectly hunky dory. But there's that sort of like darkness that that's hinted at at, at the end of the film. So yeah, and I think one way to I mean, so you, Mike, you're getting at these sort of kind of gross ideas of this like engineered human, right? That just kind of is, I mean, yeah, it's the plot of movies, right? Um, it's the the stuff, I mean, I know Gattaca kind of comes to mind. I don't know if you guys have seen that movie where it's this kind of genetically engineered world um, where they're the, the... Just came up in a conversation. Somebody I just talked to, like that was their favorite movie of all time. And I'm like so weird yeah i mean it's I it's know. interesting i wouldn't say, <laughs> wouldn't say favorite but yeah it's uh yeah i mean it at least kind of brings to mind these sorts of questions like to what degree you know what what would that look like and like um c.s lewis kind of phrases it in an interesting way by basically saying our conquest of nature isn't just of nature it's almost always like we conquest other men via nature is kind of his argument. So like as much as you can say, oh, well, we figured out this genetic engineering thing to make kids faster or whatever. Um, well, faster compared to who, right? Faster than who, right? Like someone's going to be a winner and someone's going to be a loser, right? So you're, you're not really beating nature, you're beating other people. Um, and one of the prophetic elements of this, which this, uh, we'll kind of get to some of the, the prophecies, so to speak, that are kind of within this, uh, this speech, in a second is that he makes that basically the more victor or the more victories over nature, the more victories over men uh, with each round of victory, they'll become fewer and fewer winners and a greater pool of lures losers, right? Think like a, how a tournament works, right? NCAA tournament start with 68 teams and end up with one champion. So you end up 67 losers, right? So more, more victories, he makes more and more losers. 
and eventually consolidates kind of this power um, over other men to this very small pe group of people. He calls them conditioners um, in the text and kind of goes over a few other logical points to kind of determine whether or not they'll be altruistic or not. But if there's no Tao, why would they be? Um, it's kind of the, the short answer to that. Um, and kind of comes to the conclusion that nature kind of ends up winning if that's our battle, right? Because if, if really everything comes down to the whims of there's just these handful of people who've accumulated the, the most wins and have accumulated the most power by their natural conquests, um, basically everyone becomes kind of this, yeah, just subservient to that. Um, and that's that's the that's where he brings in the this the title of the speech, the abolition of man, right? That's kind of what leads to it is basically um, when we if we conquest our you know if we put too much or if we have this unguided science or faith in science, I guess, or unmoral or uh, amoral, not necessarily immoral, but like this this sort of view of of progress, be it social or physical science. Um, that's that has replaced these sort of moral principles like that's when we've actually abolished man like because that's it's it's the the tau that makes us human um not the progress that makes us human um which is kind of how he wraps things up um so unless you got well to to sort of like put that idea another way i think you know it's Man <clears throat> ceases to be man when he's no longer engaging in reality to the full complexity of his nature. Uh, a hyper-engineered society diminishes the 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 capacity to to do that. Right? Like what? Okay, you know, what in a marriage to have a certain amount of um, responsibility over having children with uh, natural family planning, right? That that requires a lot of yourself to figure that out, right? It's versus if you're using artificial birth control, it's it's relatively simple, right? It requires very little of yourself to get that figured out, right? So I, it's, it's just another way of explaining this idea of why the abolition of man, once you have, you know, achieved this perfect wielding of technology is, is the term that he uses because man becomes diminished. There's no need for all of this man to exist. Did that make sense for us? <laughs> it did make sense. I was going to, um, have you got, well, it, have you guys ever read a Brave New World? It's been a long time. I think I did many years ago. A lot of it might, I mean, a lot of that book is kind of we have social engineered people, and um, people aren't born like from cut like they're all test like every like children are all like literally it's like um, born in a lab, and they're you know designated at birth by what social class they're going to be in, and like everything is engineered out. Um, and it's just a lot of this stuff kind of reminds me of that book. Yeah. It, it was <laughs> one more thing. It's a good intermediate thought. Yeah, no. I, Briefly. Well, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I was 
sorry. But to me, devil's advocate, it's like, you know, there's a lot of truth to these things that C.S. Lewis says, but at the same time, you will find nuns, N-O-N-E-S, who are very self-sacrificial and people who just are still very, like, complex, rich humans, even though they take these shortcuts in other ways because that's just how humans are. But at the same time, yeah, for a lot, a lot of people, yeah, these there is a lot of truth to what's being said here. Okay, I just wanted to qualify. Well, I think C.S. Lewis is also, he's not arguing at, like, the level of an individual, like, he's arguing, like, the level of the idea. So, like... I don't think he's saying, like, yeah, I mean, at least, and yes, like, to your point, like, there are all these people exist, it's like, oh, well, they, you know, such and such, you know, they are really noble and would die for certain things and stuff like that, but I think the point is more like, if you take the idea to its end point, this is what you're going to end up with, and that's not going to happen, honestly, and even in a lifetime, if that makes sense, like, it's not like, oh, I'm a nun, so therefore all of these crazy things are going to happen before I, like, within my life in the next five years. I think it's more if these ideas are allowed to take society over the course of generations, this is what it's going to ultimately end up with, Um, which um, that's why I think it's just interesting looking at him giving this talk, which what year was it, Matt? Yeah, so, I mean, a couple generations ago, so, like, you can see... People probably listen to the talk and were like, oh, I don't know about that. But, like, two years later, they didn't see it. But, like, now, us reading it in 2022, it's like, oh, I can actually see how that has kind of happened already, you know? Um, so I feel like that's more the, it takes longer to play out than just, like, you have to have a, a wider range to really see it. And And this might be a good time to just throw out and I'll, I'll kind of read out. These were a list of things that I kind of saw in the speech that he, um, he basically, yeah, he spoke to that that would that would kind of come of things, and all. Yeah, just let me know. I think this would be good fodder for potential disagreement and debate. I think this would be good. So, things that he said came true. I think continued subjectivism in uh, education. An increase in moral relativism and questioning and traditional values and roles. Various superficial sources of morality emerging without a substantial philosophical underpinning um, that stands up to the criticism uh, that people kind of use to debunk the Tao. Right. So, um, example: socialism, critical race theory, capitalism, or capitalist materialism, um, and then you know nationalism, something like that. Um, Temporary survival of the Tao in a vague sort of way, but without strict adherence or moral deference, right? I think we've kind of talked about that a little bit. Um, I think Mike referenced the baby boomer (laughs) as an example. Um, Selective breeding, uh, and in some ways, um, what's that name? Whatever. Selective breeding via contraceptive technology, abortion, IVF, gene selection therapies, things like that. What's the thing where you try to just bring about like a, a like a master race of some sort, or, or um, there's a term for it. Like no, eugenics. It's, uh, eugenics. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eugenics. Kind mm-hmm. of trying to mm-hmm. you know identify these pr- supreme genes and what yeah bring those about. 
Um, inflated ideologies, I think he talked about kind of when you take elements of the Tao and just focus on them. You know, I think uh, socialism and communism stand out. Uh, Nazism uh, certainly uh, stands out. And then centralization, and this is kind of more in the last book, uh, centralization of corporate power and messaging capabilities to those who have quote-unquote conquered nature. Um, so think Elon Musk, Google, Amazon, so on and so forth. So I think these all came true, at least to some degree. I don't know if there's any uh, debatable ones in there, but, um, but yeah, certainly thought-provoking. I think you got them all, and I still think, which no one else talked about this in the outline as much, so they must not have been as obsessed with it as me but like it's just crazy to me that all of those things came from you're not describing that waterfall correctly and i know that it's more complicated than that but like um i think that was kind of his like he ripped apart the book pretty well but like just that really i don't know that just really got me thinking about like huh what subtle things are being taught that are in 200 years are going to be like holy cow that happened from that which i think that might be a good question like because it, yeah, I could see his logic, but is he making a mountain out of a molehill? You know, I think that might be, I think what most people or what a lot of people would respond. If you just kind of did a point by point logical statement, you know, at some point they'd be like, eh, I don't know. It's, it's kind of just making, making a mountain out of a molehill. Who cares if some kids think a waterfall's pretty or whatever, you know, it's just, you know, just be nice. Whatever, you know, I, I, yeah, which again, that's kind of a rejection of the tout, right? To, to kind of reduce things to just be nice. But, uh, but yeah, like, I feel like a lot of people respond that way. Is he doing that to any degree? Is he making a mountain out of a molehill? This sort of goes to my previous point. I think to some extent that guy has always existed, even in ancient Greece, I think. Um, you know, with the waterfall, yeah. Does the ju- did this just start with <laughs> the damn waterfall? and Gaius, Tidius <laughs> and Gaius, writing in that waterfall book. Um, I, I, you know, doing a little bit of mental calisthenics. I think it, it's more of an expression of something else going on that that create an opportunity for that, that thought to make sense in people's minds. And it's right. And I think that it's, it's this, it's this idea, you know, you see, you see a very complicated world more and more, a very globalist world where you see people living different lives than you and, um, not necessarily, um, living in the end result that would make sense necessarily Uh, i remember this being like particularly striking like it wasn't until i don't know how necessarily phrase this in the most like intelligent sounding way but like sophism did not exist as a philosophical idea until or or is it nihilism um until ancient greece like ventured out (laughs) you know like 400 miles from uh from athens or something like that like it was only literally once they saw other people out in the world that this 
that this philosophical idea that you know in either case either nothing is real like came to exist and i think something similar to that just being magnified out at more of an accelerated level right because that that whole source story replaces itself again and again over over people throughout millennia right you're exposed to new things and that suddenly shakes up your idea of what's real or what's possible and that that yeah. Is is this the final? Should this be the final bell, guys? What do you think? Mm-hmm. It's getting to be okay. that time. All right, final bell. Ding, getting to be ding. that time. Rocky's Rocky's in the corner. He's bleeding. Oh, all over the he's place. He's cut. He's still he's he's still got something left. Mm. I think it's the final it's the bell. Final bell. Four rounds. Fifteen. One more round. There's no stopping this now. <laughs> this is our round. Have you guys had any experiences that really like shook you to the core like that, or that made you like seriously question, like, shoot, is everything real? Is this re-? you know, like whatever? I mean, we're all committed. Yeah, we're all committed Christian men. Um, yeah, like when was there any moment that made you that really rattled you on that front? Made you dismiss the Tao or that doubt the Tao? I've got stuff, but I'll let you guys speak. <laughs> if you've got a good one, go for yeah, it, man. Don't podcast scared. All right, I think this is an important moment right now. Let's all rezone. Mike, tell us okay. about. Yeah, I mean, I think that for me, sort of just a really uh, dark internal period um, toward towards the end of college and early in graduate school. Um, you know, you're really you're flying high with uh, certain uh, spiritual certainty about about the world that's been shaped in you, and a couple of well, they're really three big things. One of them I can't really say, but uh, one of them was my seeing my grandpa over the course of six or seven years uh, diminish from, it wasn't technically Alzheimer's, but it was another form of dementia um, that uh, effectively looked the same. Um, and seeing that you know, I, I think a useful like metaphor is that how I, how I perceived it at least is that there's there's some kind of blessing if you're God forbid dying of cancer because you can still for the most part like your mind is still present and you can still make sense of what's happening to you and you know find some sort of uh, uh, redemptive uh, dimension to the experience. But if it's something like Alzheimer's, then it's like, you know, for a lot of moments, your mind is just somewhere else. Who it is, you know, only God knows. Um, like, man, that's, that's, that's really, really heavy. Um, and then uh, the other things that's, well, the other things, seeing the, uh, one particular priest acquaintance 
leave the priesthood was really uh, startling to me. Um, you know, because up to that point, my understanding of it, of things, was that, you know, you just, you know your apologetics, and, like, that's that's your, like, resistance from any sort of anything, like, spiritually bad happening to you like that, right? That the atheism was sort of, like, self-inflicted was, uh, was my notion. Um, but then, obviously, you see something like that happen, and then it's like, oh, well, Shoot, I don't know as much as he did. So <laughs> how do you make how do you make, how do you square those ideas away? So yeah, I mean, I definitely definitely um uh what what's the I'm looking for uh, the poetic word weighted uh weighted in certain like nihilistic thoughts uh for for some period of time um but what sort of I'd say more or less brought me through the other side is a certain uh witness of other people who that was sort of like equally inexplicable but sort of on the positive end of it right among my among my friends uh especially um I I think there's there's a scripture verse that just always sticks in my head um has always stuck in my head since that time and it's you know where christ has just presented the the absurdity of the theology of the eucharist to his his disciples and he turns to peter and asks are you gonna leave me too and peter says to him to whom else shall we go only you have the worries of eternal life right and there's there's a certain sort of like parallel there i feel like where you know it wasn't it wasn't the theology of the Eucharist that I had trouble with, but it was a certain absurdity to the theology of life, whereas my grandpa uh, suffering from dementia or this priest leaving, the the priest leaving the priesthood. It's like, I don't know how to make sense of this, but what I do trust is, and I think the TV show Cho- Chosen presents this well, I, I do trust the 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 presence of this individual in the way that he manifests among the people I love like that I can trust and I see more goodness bearing out in the course of a life uh by being a disciple of that path rather than becoming a becoming a nihilist even though that makes sense in a certain way it's it's easier it's easier to square with well of course <laughs> Of course, a priest leaves the priesthood because life just, things just don't make sense. How can you expect to just fit the sense of life into uh, into a catechism? You know. Hmm. Anything stick out to you, uh, you guys, Ross or Landon? Landon changed his lighting to match the mood. <laughs> <laughs> I think I hope I, I mean, I've been thinking for a second about how to articulate this and it's difficult but I'm trying to think of your answer like or your question Matt to try to answer it specifically and I've already kind of forgotten it maybe I was getting lost in my own thoughts but um at least what I remember what I remember you asking is um something the effect of like have you ever not did you say have you ever doubted the towel like, i don't know yeah, what exactly. made you like doubt the towel or doubt or kind of rattle you from yeah kind of like just i mean 
finding meaning in things. I think similar, I mean, I guess similarly to Mike, in a sense, just, and not that we're all super old, but getting a little bit older. So when I maybe fully embraced the Tao, I was 18 years old in college. And like, um, now it's like, I feel like just having gotten a little bit older, having to deal with, yeah, family members dying. Um, I work with a lot of patients, so I'm a neurological PT. So I work with people that have had strokes, spinal cord injuries, brain injuries, things like that. So I've worked with a lot of patients that, yeah, I mean, sad is the only way to describe like what is going on right now. Like there's not a, it's like terribly not sufficient to describe what they're going through, but like, I don't really have a better word for it either. Um, so I think just being uh, confronted with that type of stuff, not that it makes me question like, well, I'm going to sit down and write this paper about, you know, not, not like questioning at this level of like academic, Oh, I'm going to, you know, dissect what I think is true and what not Mm -hmm. true, but just, faced with a lot of difficulties and brokenness and stuff like that um but i think when it comes back to i guess how we'll we'll say the tau which i hope the listeners understand what that means i don't know if they will (laughs) but um i I feel like uh, we we got it clear but like i feel like in my best moments like and i guess maybe i'm referencing the tau right now as well to just describe what my best moments are but, like, in my best moments, I think the Tao is obvious to me. Like, not, I don't want to say, like, when I'm happiest, but, yeah, in my best moments, I think <clears throat> a lot of the Tao is obvious. Yeah. Um, that a lot of this yeah. is real, and it does exist, and I don't want a future with genetically engineered humans, because that's crazy. And, like, <clears throat> yes, that waterfall is sublime, and the Grand Canyon is majestic, and, there are a lot of heroes that died for good causes and like in my best moments, I think, and when I'm most excited about life, those things just seem really obvious to me. And in my moments where I may be more, again, not skeptical at an act like an, an academic level, but you know, seeing the difficulties, seeing the challenges, like I just don't know if I'm really, not that I have like, not that I'm like bipolar and have like, you know, two personalities, but I just, question when i have those more moments of questioning or confusion like just like outside looking in i just don't think that's when i'm at my best if that makes sense at all um i'm definitely more energetic i'm more joyful i'm more excited about life in the moments that i am you know i see the towel more clearly and i don't think those so like i don't want to like reduce it to like how I feel though either because I don't think that it always lines up with like the external circumstances so it's not like oh I'm in this really sad situation I question everything and everything's going right well right now yeah the Tao's cool like it's not necessarily directly related to the external circumstance if that makes sense um but I I just feel like I Yeah, even in sometimes in the really hard circumstances, I feel like the towel makes really good sense, um, and I don't know how to I don't know how to articulate it. I guess any better than that. So, yeah, I would. I mean, there have been a couple instances, some more profound than others, that um, where I've really just had to um, just either formally or at least just kind of uh, I don't know. I suppose I've never had to formally cut off for like a relationship or friendship, but just kind of practically 
speak and be like, okay, like this friendship or this relationship is going to be markedly different from here on out. Um, because of like a principle like that, that, um, I would say those, that is definitely like where I felt the most rattled and like, oh crap, like (laughs) this is, you know, this is, uh, like this is where the rubber hits the road and this is where like all that stuff I said I believe in is going to like kind of play out. Um, and yeah, uh, I'm just going to leave it at that, I guess, just for, for privacy purpose purposes, but but yeah, just a couple different friendships and, and relationships and things that, um, yeah, just had to become markedly different. Based on our origin episode, I think that's when you found out I was a Cardinals fan. <laughs> Ross, I didn't want to get personal, all right? Landon's still a believer. <laughs> well, I think I – think... What I'll combine that question with the question we had um, to kick it off. Like, did you grow up with an education system that, like, had the towel definitely ingrained? I think it was really hard. I I don't know if it was easily ingrained in, like, I don't know, high school, middle school, certainly college. But I, I, I had like a spiritual, more Christian-specific education, and I think merging—I don't know what the world is with or without the towel versus like what, like what I believe would be like more of the fundamental natural laws. I think, I think that process takes longer when it doesn't exist in the formal education system and when the world's at perhaps a precipice in 1943 and especially today where it's like it mostly probably doesn't exist um and i think you're always just like trying to figure out like who believes in some of these natural laws and who doesn't and that's just really hard to integrate with and it seems like CS was struggling with it in the 40s and I imagine it's present every day now um, that's probably the hardest part yeah shall I end with a quote from the speech all right we have been trying like Lear to have it both ways to lay down our human prerogative, and yet, at the same time, to retain it. It is impossible. Either we are rational spirit, obliged forever to obey the absolute values of the Tao, or else we are mere nature, to be kneaded and cut into new shapes for the pleasures of masters who must, by hypothesis, have no motive but their own natural impulses. Only the Tao provides a common human law of action, which can overarch rulers and ruled alike. A domatic belief in objective value is necessary to the very idea of a rule which is not tyranny or an obedience which is not slavery. When Landon dimmed his lights and then Matt was like, have you guys ever questioned reality? I just like pictured him like with a big old cigarette in his mouth, like sit down, so I'm going to tell you about this stuff. <laughs> I've seen mm-hmm. some real in my day. Thing.
Thanks for and drinking. And thinking with us. Wait. <laughs> Do it again. All right. We just it needs to be permanent responsibilities. Okay. Landon, since you're never here, you don't get any responsibility. That's fine. I I understand that. Unless we we can lengthen it, I guess somehow give everyone a trophy. I don't need to. All right, Mike says drinking. Matt it. says thinking. Who says no? With I us? say, oh, thanks for drinking. Thanks for drinking and thinking. I don't want to say with us. That's all I get. <laughs> I'll say it then. Who cares? <laughs> okay, hang on. I'll try it again. Let me feel, see if it feels natural. Hey, it's been a great show, folks. Thanks for drinking. And thinking. With us. Hey, cue the music. You're a natural, Ross. You I get the with us. Place, will lead us to a better place.